You're listening to a podcast from Heart. I'm Ian Simpson. Uh, the British Cardiovascular Society annual conference in Manchester doing a podcast with Professor Michael Joy, who is professor at the University of Surrey and a famous uh, cardiologist in aviation cardiology, particularly. Michael, welcome. Thank you very much. And uh, we've just had a wonderful lecture from you in, uh, in a key knowledge sessions for the trainees called Get the J-Point, which was really a, a very interesting talk about uh, ECGs. Tell me, how common in reality do you think abnormalities in the ECG uh, do, you, do you come across, particularly in aviation cardiology? Well, I have a, a rather unusual practice uh, because uh, part-time I'm cardiologist in the Civil Aviation Authority and one of the chores has been over a very large number of years to, uh, to uh, scrutinise these uh, their resting electrocardiograms that are performed by authorised medical examiners around the country and they are submitted. Formerly we looked at all of them. More recently uh, we've accepted the ones passed normal by, uh, with all the shortcomings of that, of the um, uh, computerized electrocardiogram. So I'm seeing fewer now than I used to. I used to see about 6,000 a year. It's probably only probably about 1,000 a year now, I would think. Uh, but of course, there's a higher concentration of problems. Um, in I did publish this a long time ago, and if I had notice of that question, I could have come up with the figures. But something like between two or three percent of all the electrocardiograms on a predominantly male population, which of course is pilots, uh, of a mean age of about 40, between 45 and 47, yeah. 2 or 3% will have some point of query. Sometimes, if you, it depends how minor is your minor query. Minor ST second and T wave changes uh, will maybe um, perhaps 1 to 2%, something like that. Depends what you count as an abnormality, because incomplete right bundle branch block is a normal variant, for example. And so, and there are uh, maybe QS waves in S3, which are not seen uh, um, uh, in the other inferior leads with no other, re- uh, with a, uh, a non-concordant T wave would be, uh, again, a, a variant of normal probably. So what we're specifically looking for is for anomalies in the electrocardiogram that might be associated with, um, uh, that, that, that might be concealing something. And I guess that was probably one of the points I wanted to pick up with you, is that what ECG changes would you regard as worrying from the point of view of a a cardiologist? Uh, From a cardiologist or somebody who's advising a regulatory authority as to whether somebody's fit to fly? Well, probably the latter, because you you did allude to some of the ECG changes that can be quite subtle. So so what would worry you on an ECG in that context? if I could, could I take that backwards and say the ones that wouldn't worry me but are quite obvious, like, as I've already mentioned, incomplete right bundle branch aberration. Complete right bundle branch aberration um, acquired in middle years or beyond in the absence of any other pathology, known coronary pathology or even uh, sought for coronary pathology, um, is most commonly benign and uh, after a year following investigation but not looking specifically for coronary disease in the case of complete right, acquired complete right bundle branch block we recertificate we allow them to fly without a restriction um, left bundle branch block as you know is more likely to be associated with uh, coronary artery disease by way of an explanation but in our well population which are of course pilots generally speaking our coronary disease 
as an explanation for the left bundle branch aberration is much less than the clinical experience in a hospital. In the hospital, it's about 50%. In our experience, it's a good deal less than that, possibly around 10%. But we do seek it out uh, with uh, 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 pharmacological stress, thallium MPI. And if that's normal, we allow it to go through. One of the, uh, well, indeed, the title of your uh, talk today was uh, Getting the J-Point. Tell me about the J-Point and its relevance. Well... I was asked to talk, I think you asked me kindly to talk about the the hidden depths or something. Um, People in my view, I've spent a long time looking at electrocardiograms and of course the more you look at it, the more becomes evident and people overlook a lot of things. And as I said at the beginning, I did actually take the trouble to look up a definition of the J-point in um, half a dozen greater than one kilogram heavy textbooks and found it in only one and I didn't actually use it. Essentially, the J-point is just, as I explained this morning, the junction between the S-wave and the ST segment, and it's quite difficult to define in a number of leads. And really, it was to focus on a single point in the electrocardiogram. I could do it almost anywhere in the electrocardiogram, so I was talking about like to do the U-wave sometime, if anyone's interested, or looking at um, uh, initial Q-wave deflections in the first 40 milliseconds, that sort of thing. So if you actually analyse the ECG, what I was really trying to, the message I was getting across is look at every single bit of the ECG, rather like when you're listening to the heart and auscultating you listen right through the cardiac cycle. Don't pattern recognize. It applies to clinical auscultatory cardiology as it does to electrocardiography, in my belief. You need to look at it sequentially and analyze it and see which each tiny bit of each time segment of the ECG is telling you. So the J-point was just one that you don't hear discussed. And I guess what you've sort of alluded to is that the standard resting ECG is still a very valuable investigation um what uh, what do you think really is the role of the exercise test and i mean these are asymptomatic uh, pilots who uh, you may find minor ecg abnormalities exercise test any any use in that situation well a very long time ago in in fact i can tell you 1972 uh, the trident aircraft crashed at stains and the handling pilot captain stan key had had a heart attack He'd had, we showed a, a fresh hemorrhage into a plaque. I won't go into that. It's a very interesting piece of aviation history. Following that accident, special evidence was taken and there was an expert report. And one of the recommendations was that we should carry out exercise electrocardiography in pilots as a routine to try and avoid this sort of thing happening. That was adopted by the United States and in the United Kingdom by the AHA and by the British Cardiac Society as a recommendation, but it hadn't actually been commissioned as a recommendation. And we had a good look at it, and when I represented the United Kingdom at ICAO, that's the International Civil Aviation Organization in Montreal in 1980, we argued against it for the reason that you're asking the question, that if you have a middle-aged, mainly male, asymptomatic population and you exercise them, you'll get something like five or six or seven times as many false positive abnormal recordings and who don't have coronary disease as you will true positive. So um, that obviously was not the way to go. So it has no role in the routine evaluation of pilots. It has a role as a very cheap and cheerful uh, means of e- examining, I believe, people who have some query. 
Now, if you can manage 12 minutes of the Bruce Protocol without significant, without diagnostic electrocardiographic changes, your chances of some sort of an, uh, an event or an ischemic event in the next 12 months is about 1% or less. It's less than 1%, and that is tolerable. So it does have a value, and the pilot which I presented to you, who was a, a very uh, keen athlete, an Ironman athlete, um, and uh, I, I, that didn't deter me from exercising him. And, of course, according to conventional criteria, that was not an ischemic response if you measure it purely on ST segment deflection. So I, was, I didn't, I mean, I could have spent the whole talk on the evolution of ST changes in exercise, but in him, he, although he didn't meet conventional criteria, he, uh, it was still, in my view, a, a, a diagnostically abnormal electrocardiogram. Out of 30,000 exercise recordings I've uh, interpreted, I think I've only seen that pattern four or five times uh, in people who had no coronary disease. And so he turned out to have coronary disease. And of course, now I've got him back to flying because we, re- we revascularized him. I guess it's, I mean, it's obviously quite a responsibility in terms of uh, <coughs> allowing pilots to fly, but I guess what you're saying is that in the exercise test, subtle abnormalities, a bit like the resting ECG, one has to be very careful about identifying and how best to take that forward. So a bit of a pattern recognition, but obviously the vast experience you've had in, in looking at these tracings must be very valuable in picking out what turns out to be pathology from just physiology it's, it, it's yes you get a hunch you know because if you have uh, you know if you've seen a lot you you do pick out the ones that for some reason that's sometimes difficult to express why that you don't like the look of because you're not always right um, but that but that that is certainly the case do you think some of the more modern imaging techniques uh, stress imaging but also ct angiography mri are going to play a much greater part in the future in terms of identifying fit, uh, pilots or uh, fitness to fly in general well it might surprise you to to learn um that the or probably already know it uh, but the number of people uh, killed um, in airline accidents per year, uh, something a little bit shy of a thousand a year worldwide for, uh, for uh, a very substantial uh, number, um, 3.2 billion passengers carried or something. I mean, it's an extraordinarily safe way to, uh, uh, to travel. Um, now, uh, the number of accidents that are directly attributable in airlines due to medical cause are vanishingly small. So I think the present level of scrutiny is about right, which isn't answering your question. But obviously we have to move. And people occasionally, I mean, I saw somebody the other day whose fiancé, he's an airline pilot, decided to give him a, a, a calcium score and a, a CT angiogram as a, as a birthday present. And of course he came back loaded up with calcium. The question is, what do you do then? Um, so we have to, yes, I think these techniques uh, will, uh, uh, but they're ancillary techniques because basically um, measuring the blood pressure, looking for sugar in the water, which is of course the, what the authorised medical examiners do, and carrying out a resting electrocardiogram, um, that's, a, that's not a bad first trawl. Um, and then if, if they come and they're referred to me, for example, if you recall that one who's referred to the right bundle branch aberration, but it was Barn Door Brigada, you know, you do pick these sort of ones up uh, on, on an occasional basis. But we, we use all the, the modern investigative modalities when they're, in, when, when they're 
uh, uh, w- when they're required. Michael, I'm sure we'll all fly home rather more safely <laughs> uh, knowing that uh, the screening of these pilots seems to be about right. So, so thank you very much for your lecture and thank you very much for speaking to us today on the podcast. Great pleasure. Thank you very much, Ian. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.